You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and a priest to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne with the living creatures and the elders, and in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Amen? Amen. You participated in that revelation moment just a little while ago when you sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And then it was sort of cool to see some kids from around the world. I tell you what, Samaritan's Purse is one of the classiest missions organizations that uh, God has raised up. Taking God's word and taking hope to kids around the world who oftentimes don't have any hope. And we get to participate in that aspect of gathering together young people from every language, tribe, and nation. Some of you are aware of this. We've done it for a couple years, I believe. But uh, Operation Christmas Child, you get to participate in putting together one of these shoe boxes. And uh, this is one that's already been brought in and done, and there's a lot of goodies in there, as well as a lot of simple things that a lot of kids around the world don't have, like a toothbrush. I remember hearing one kid, he got the toothbrush, he started combing his hair. He'd never seen one, right? I want to encourage you to uh, participate in Operation Christmas Child. I think it's the second week, uh, 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 November 16th. These are due, so you need to be on it now. There is this information in the back you can pick up. Your kids already have it. They have a video clip that they've been showing. But even if you don't have kids, do one, adults. Let's just take as many boxes as we can. There, uh, uh, some of the transport center is over in Orange County, and that'll be making the hike that time. But uh, I don't know. I, when I saw that clip this week, knowing what we've been talking about here as a body of people concerning the end times, my heart was just, I don't know, I just sort of had to smile. Because it really is one massive body of lovers and followers of Jesus Christ that's being gathered together for eternity. And so what we're doing here this morning with worship and looking at God's word is not a small little thing. This is a huge deal. In fact, it is the main deal. And we need to prepare our lives and our hearts to jump at it. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back soon. I had a question for you. Serious question. Maybe you sit around and contemplate these kinds of questions. If you found out from a medical doctor, crisis of crisis, that you had six months to live, how would that change your life? If you had six months to live, maybe you had a friend, maybe you had a relative, a parent maybe found out. If you had six months to live, how would that change your life? I threw that question out to my kids. We have our whole family here this weekend, which is huge for us. And... um, I found it interesting because you think in terms of, oh, my life, i only got six months to live. There's a lot of things i got to do, things I could go to. I, you know, one of my kids, I, I would just, just take credit cards and stack them all. I'm done. <laughs> just have a good time. I'm like, okay, right. Yeah, but if you had six months to live, there are some things you would probably try to get around and do and things you could uh, step into that maybe you wouldn't normally think about doing, maybe some stuff that's on your bucket list. 
be at six months flu. But what if someone came to you and said, it's not that you have six months to live related to your death, but you have six months before Jesus Christ comes back on this earth. You see, that starts to change the trajectory a little bit. If it's your death, you're going to want to spend time with your family and friends and just sort of soak it up the best you can, right? Maybe there's some people you want to share the faith with and that kind of thing. But, you know, if it's just you dying and the world's continuing on after you live, that's different than if you say the end of the world as we now know it is going to end in six months. Whoa. That's a little different. Because then it's not just you that's transitioning. Everyone's transitioning. And what if it wasn't just six months? What if someone came to you and said, you know, Jesus is coming back this week. Probably none of you would go into work tomorrow, right? There would be other things that we'd be adamant about. And I would imagine that you would sort of make your way around to some people you don't know and say, I've got proof here is written down. You know, some, a video was sent to me. It was, it was stamped by God Himself. He's coming back this week. Watch this. We've got to talk. There's a sense of urgency that would be built in us if we truly anticipated the Lord Jesus Christ coming back. You need to know this. The people that were left on this earth after Jesus ascended, following his resurrection, his first coming, they had a sense of urgency like that. Jesus went into the clouds. He's coming back and and, uh, there's not a lot of preparations and things that we need to be doing other than we need to be letting people know. This is our third week of stepping into this series called Left Behind No More. And uh, some of it comes on the heels of uh, another rendition of what uh, the prophetic future might hold if the Lord came back. Uh, That's being done as a movie that's in movie theaters. But to me, the reason that we stepped into this series was to help build context for your life and mine. Context as it relates to what we need to be doing day in and day out, in light of God's full revelation. Left behind no more. We've been walking through Matthew 24. I said it was going to take a month. It appears it's going to take longer than a month because we want to walk through Matthew 25 as well. But what was Jesus' teaching to his followers concerning the end, concerning the end of time? He spoke to them with this, I believe, a sense of matter-of-factness that caused them to realign their life and their ministry as it moved out with a spirit of daily expectation that we need to recapture for today. In fact, the New Testament followers, they had a word that they use one with another. It was called Maranatha. Maranatha. You ever heard that word? Maybe if you're older, there used to be the Maranatha singers and some other things I remember from decades ago, right? Kind of deal. But Maranatha, there's different ways to sort of twist a little bit of the meaning of what it meant. But it meant, come Lord Jesus. 
It was both a declaration, the Lord is coming, and also a petition, come Lord Jesus. And so when they went around and they greeted one another, instead of saying, hey dude, how's this going, high five, how's the week's happening, that kind of stuff, right? They would say, Maranatha, 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 maybe some high fives, I don't know. Maranatha. Now I need you all to stand up right now. If you have been around here on a regular basis, you realize we forgot to do one thing here this morning. We always sort of give a little bit of announcements. We say a welcome, welcome to the awakening. We want you to greet one another by saying Maranatha. I don't want that to just be a nice, simple exercise we did today. You have permission any week that we do turn and greet to say to someone, Maranatha. We need to remind one another of the great truth of which Jesus Christ himself shared with his disciples in those days before he went to the cross, was buried, rose from the grave and ascended to the heavens, that he was Coming back. Prophecy is sort of an interesting kind of beast. I told you I've been in workshop and I was going to maybe come in some Sundays a little messy. I don't know if this is messy or not today. You'll have to make that decision afterwards. Just don't tell me. Because I'm going to take on some content today is where it gets to, starts to get a little tricky. But I, um, I realize with prophecy that it's not an exact science. What do you think? No one throughout all times has ever seen prophecy as an exact science. Even when Bible scholars may come across as if it was. 2 Peter 1.19 says this, We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it. Awakening body, as to the light shining in a darkness until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of the scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The first prophets we would acknowledge are the prophets of the Old Testament, of course. In fact, large sections of the major prophets and the minor prophets broken into those two sections of all the prophets, not based upon if they were, you know, big time cool people or small little peon people. It had to do with the volume of content that was written about them. All right. So Isaiah is a major prophet. Right. Malachi is a smaller kind of prophet. Now, 
When they wrote their prophecies, do you think they understood everything that was being pressed upon them by the Holy Spirit? And I find it interesting that Peter refers to the Holy Spirit active back in the Old Testament, coming upon common ordinary people who were chosen by God to give a prophecy, a word that was spoken not by human will because they wanted to say it, but a word that was being forced through their, sub, their conscious, subconscious, spoken, written, a word from God to people. When they spoke that word, when they wrote that word, they did not have a full comprehension of what they were saying. In fact, if we were to go back to that time and hear the prophets speak about the first coming of Jesus Christ, which there are myriads of prophecies concerning the coming of Jesus Christ, that he would be born in Bethlehem, so on and so forth, you know, descendant of the tribe of David, that kind of thing, that you're like, okay, there's some pieces there we can sort of put together, and when is the Messiah? The Messiah is going to come. But what's in their mind? Their mind is not the Jesus who came. In their mind, they have a political Messiah who is going to bring freedom and to establish this realm. No one fully understood at that time that the coming of Jesus the first time would be a coming for Him to establish His rule and reign in our hearts. And that in one sense there would be this second coming where He would establish His rule and reign upon a new heaven and a new earth. They did not see it. If you would have told those prophets that God Himself was going to become incarnate in the flesh, be born through a virgin, live a normal life, typically up through age 30, spend three years doing ministry, walking around with common ordinary sinners, gather just a few, a couple handfuls of people to hang around Him, be obedient then to die a cruel death, a criminal's death on a cross, be buried in a tomb, and then be raised from the dead, and then appear to people over a period of 40 days, and then be ascended to the heavens, and then say, see you later, but I'll be back. The prophets went and went, nah, we don't like that version. But I tell you what, that's the version that we get, right? Because that's what happened to fulfill the Scriptures. But that is a very, I believe, fanciful fulfillment of prophecy. And when I see what Jesus did the first time, I sort of sit back and I go, that's pretty cool. (laughs) I mean, who would have thought of that? That's wild. Well, one of my messinesses in trying to talk about Jesus' second coming is that some people like to package it really tight. Some people like to package it really simple. Some people have some crazy ideas about how it will happen. I have a tendency, you just need to know this, I don't know about you. As I grow older, I become less confident of some things. I become more confident of other things, right? But there's some dogmas that I sort of bought into growing up where I was for sure. I remember debating um, somebody in a, in a university, I was only a high school kid, I was a senior in high school, I went to a Fellowship of Christian Athletes conference, and they were speaking on end times, and I didn't think they were doing it right. And I ended up debating them. I remember doing that. And this was like a professor, right? 
Well, he came out of one persuasion concerning how it was all going to come out at the end. And I'd come out of some other dogmas how I thought it was going to come out at the end. I thought mine was a lot cooler. Mine was tighter. It was more intriguing. It was more, and, and I tell you what, I have tried as I've grown older to really dig into scriptures and make sure that I'm not presumptuous by what somebody else has said. But what is the Lord saying? That's one of the scary things for me. Matthew 24, 25, they're red letters, right? These are the words of Jesus. And I'm the one that has to be up here this morning to tell you what he really meant. Would you like to take my place? Right? Jesus spoke prophetic words. But I tell you what, this is what happens to me as I study his words more. I start to realize like I'm an Old Testament person. And there's an awful lot I don't know. Some of the dogmas and things I believed growing up, they could very well happen. I think that'd be pretty cool if they did. But when I read people that are like, oh, that's being presumptuous. You've got to be simpler. Jesus is coming back and then there's a new world. Let's not get into all the little details. I'm like, well, why not? We need to make sure that we're not being presumptuous and, and uh, doing eisegesis, putting into Scripture what's not there, rather than exegesis, which is getting out of Scripture what is really there. But do we think... <laughs> I'm sorry, God is the creator of the universe. God is the dreamer of all things. Do we think God has a boring plan to finish it out for this season? No. (laughs) And so when I read some of the imagery of the scriptures concerning the second coming of Jesus Christ, I'm not hesitant to take it literally. Some of it is image pointing to something behind the scenes. Some of it is very straightforward. If you went back to the Old Testament prophets concerning the first coming of Jesus, we now look back and say, well, why didn't they? Jesus was really clear. It was right there. What was their deal? It's because they didn't quite understand, or maybe they were hesitant to believe as it was spoken. And so as we talk about a little bit more of the detail of Jesus' second coming today, I want you to know that you have permission to believe whatever you want to believe, whatever camp you come from, and you can believe in very articulated, cool things. You can believe very simply. You know, it doesn't necessarily matter to me. You need to get some of the big pieces right, like he's coming back, right, Maranatha. But do not shun anybody who looks into prophecy, studies prophecy, and sees a much bigger dynamic picture than what you're able to place your faith in at the moment. When it's all said and done, we'll probably say, I'll be, how about that? That's the way it played out. But I believe this is important for us. I don't think we should just ignore and skip over large portions of Scripture because we don't understand it. To be honest with you, and I sometimes search to see what some other uh, communicators have spoken on a particular passage I'm surprised that not more people have spoken on the Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24 and 25. But I think part of the reason it's not been spoken on and sort of fallen into laps in modern evangelical times, I believe, is because we don't want to mess it up, but we also don't want to do the work and try to think through it. Because when we start to think through it, guess what happens? It's happened to me in these weeks. I trust it's happened to you. There is a spirit of expectancy that starts to boy up. Six months? Wow. Maybe. Maybe. 
maybe longer, maybe after my lifetime. But when you study prophecy, it's going to, I believe, stir up what's happened in this passage here, which is God himself through his Holy Spirit begins to quicken your heart and realign your life and what needs to be changed and ordered by him. We had a simple diagram that we started out the first week with. This was our simple diagram. There is the present age and there is the age to come. Pretty simple. And you can just stay with that as your story and you're good. As long as you understand that things will change and there is a coming age led by Christ himself. He came into this present age. That's where the cross is represented there and did his salvific work for you and I so that all might be saved and be with him heading into the age to come. Then we moved a little bit further and we said that this age to come really did enter the future. The first fruits have entered into this world through Christ. And since the first coming of Christ until what will be his second coming, we are in something called the last days. So we have creation we began with. We're moving towards a destiny. Scripture teaches in the back of Revelation, another book that a lot of people don't like to dig into because, well, it's just hard. And we might get it wrong. It's a little scary. It's a little uncertain. It's scary because it's uncertain. But Scripture teaches. You read the back of the book. Yes, we win. But the back of the book has a different world to it. The new heaven and the new earth. So we're on this continuum from creation to the new heaven, the new earth. Eternity even moves beyond that to your chart to the right. It just keeps going and going and going and going. Infinity. You got a good feel for infinity one of these days? You can sort of get a feel for that. Infinity just keeps going on. All right. We are in this particular box right here that I've drawn in called the overlap of the ages. And we're trying to figure out what's happening. We know this for sure. Jesus came once. He said he would come back. He's coming again. But inside of the overlap of the ages, we live in what's referred to today as um, the church age. Matthew 24 Verse 36, it refers to this, and this is where we pick up things at. Oops, I'm sorry. Matthew 24, 21. We picked this up last week. For then there will be great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. For the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. New American Standard, Jesus says it this way. It's interpreted this way. Then there will be a great tribulation. This passage, we looked at it last week, the great tribulation. We know that inside our box on this continuum, that there is the great tribulation that's going to happen before the new heavens and the new earth. Now, this great tribulation is juxtaposed to the year 70 A.D. when Jerusalem fell. Because you see this again. It was the passage where they were walking through the temple, pointing out to Jesus, how cool is this building? And Jesus looks at them and says, every one of the stones here will be torn apart and thrown down. And they were intrigued. Whoa, when will this happen? What will be a sign of your coming and at the end of the age? And he begins to articulate to them, 
that there'll be wars and rumors of wars. Kingdom will rise, kingdom will fall, nation will rise, nation will fall. There will be famines, pestilence, earthquakes in various places. Then you're going to be handed over to be persecuted. Everybody's going to hate you because of my name. Many people will turn away from the faith at that time. The love of most will grow cold. I mean, it wasn't a pretty good scene. He was describing what was going to happen when there was the fall of Jerusalem the first time. And the Romans devastated, tore apart the whole Temple Mount, took things over. Actually, 70 A.D. was the last stronghold um, when they were um, headed up to an area called Masada. That prophecy of every stone will be torn down was fulfilled in 70 A.D. But then as we looked at last week, sometimes prophecy has this double fulfillment to it. And that's one of the things that makes it hard. There's a partial fulfillment now, but then there's a future fulfillment. We said last week it's like looking at a mountain precipice and you're hiking up sort of the mountain and you think you're maybe getting close and you get up to one precipice and you realize there's a whole valley in between that and the next mountain where you were looking to go. Yeah, great. I think the whole present, the, the whole church age between the 70 A.D. and the Great Tribulation that's spoken of is sort of like that valley going, oh, wait, we thought Jesus was coming back again to establish this political reign. I guess not. I mean, for those disciples, it wasn't that he was coming back. They never knew he was leaving the first time. So their, his coming, they thought, was him coming into his prominence with the political systems of the day and establishing his messiahship before all people. So this diagram then begins to move its way to explain that the Great Tribulation, I believe, is a tribulation that happens before his second coming. Is there a Great Tribulation today? Sure there is. In fact, we live in very comfortable environments compared to what's happening with many Christians and many people around the world. All right? It's also, that's another reason why we don't have this spirit of expectancy is because we're sort of comfortable doing our own deal. A lot of things are nice happening. But in many other environments of the world, what? They need the hope that's spoken of, consistently reminding one another of the Lord's return or the new heaven and the new earth that's coming. But Jesus spoke in Matthew 24 here of this great distress, this great tribulation. He's referring to 70 A.D., also referring to a time of great tribulation. Verse 29. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man of heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. So in this portion of scripture or as he's speaking to his disciples who came to him to say hey how's all it going to play its way out he then begins to describe and he says after this then will appear after this distress and tribulation then will appear the son of man in heaven and there is great glory that accompanies god upon his return through jesus christ in this hour then verse 36 we'll jump there But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. Can you picture yourself sitting with Jesus, Mount of Olives? He's sort of instructing this to you. And he just looks at you and goes, I don't know. 
Wouldn't that like discourage you? If you thought he was the Messiah? Like, why do you know? How do you know all this other stuff? But you don't know that? You know, it's one of the fascinating things for us to try to understand what the incarnation was. Jesus came in flesh. He was born a human being. He was 100% human, but he was also 100% divine. He never gave it up. He wasn't 50-50. That would be like a really strange being, all right? But he was fully human. He was fully divine. But in his ability to take on humanity, he gave up some of his knowledge of divinity for certain time beings, and God revealed things to him, the Father, at certain places and certain times. And so in this particular moment, Jesus is sitting with them, and he's saying not even the Son knows. And he was truthful. If you were to call Jesus up now at the right hand of the Father, say, hey, are you still in the dark about what your dad's doing? No. He would know fully. He's fully God. All right? And so the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, eternally existent, as three people into one, all right? They know when the time's coming. There will be a time when the Father turns to the Son and says, You know, now's the time. Be blessed. And He'll return. There is an hour known by God the Father when his return. But when Jesus was here on earth, he was speaking to his disciples and he was saying to them this. Why? So people wouldn't spend their time sitting around doing silly, stupid calculations trying to figure out when Jesus was going to come. Now, that may go against what I just said before about people being intrigued and all the articulate. That's fine. But do not become overly dogmatic like Jesus is going to return. We referenced last week some of the people who said Jesus was going to return and everybody in the world does what? They mock. That's <laughs> silly. We don't need to get caught up in the day or the time. All right? We do need to get caught up in expecting him and letting people know there's an urgency that the Lord Jesus is returning. He then goes on and says this. As it was in the day of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day that Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came. And took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Time doesn't afford for us to go back and thoroughly look at Noah. But what were they doing? They were mocking Noah. Noah received a word from the Lord that he was going to destroy the earth with a flood. 120 years he spent building that ark. 120 years he spent having to listen to the yahoos around him who were mocking him and uh, condemning his following of this God. 120 years. While they went on and did what? They went on their merry ways. Just living life. Marrying. Doing all their different kinds of stuff that it's, it's, it's stated here that they did. And Jesus says, that's the way it's going to be when I return. When the Son of Man comes in the clouds in the sky, everybody's just going to be doing their own deal, falling more and more into wickedness and depravity, indifferent to the things of God. They're going to have a cavalier, careless, and callous attitude concerning the things of God. The days of Noah are upon us. And the days of Noah... are what you and I need to be mindful of. Don't let it discourage you. Let it quicken you and say, 
this would be the time that he would come. This would be the time that he'd come. Maybe it's not just six months out Jesus returned. What if Jesus returned today? What if Jesus returned before the Seahawks or the Colts game was done? Do you believe that? Around one or two o'clock, think he'd return? I mean, how many of you believe that he would return then? How, how many believe that uh, maybe before the, the Chargers game's done? Between four or five. It's not on yet, Herb. You're good. You're good. And if any of you have NFL mobile right now, I hope you feel really bad. How many of you believe he's going to come before the end of the day? I mean, honest, don't put your hand up because the pastor asked. Guess what? He's going to come in an hour that you think not. So it's a pretty good chance now that he's going to come because none of you think he is. That's the lulling to sleep and just moving from one day to the next and week to the week generation. That's when the Lord's going to come and he is going to reveal himself in all of his glory. Verse 36. No one knows the day or the hour. Then verse 40 adds this. Two men will be left in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. And in the Luke version, it references one sleeping and another one left. This is where the left behind title comes from for the movie. One will be taken and one left. Now, this refers to something we're going to look at in a second. But in context of what Jesus is speaking here, this is referring to his second coming. And normally we think, well, one's going to be taken to be with Jesus. And part of that's been because of the conditioning maybe of some generations that we've been a part of concerning biblical teaching. But here's the reality. If it's in the days of Noah, think about this. The people that were left, all right? They were the ones doomed to destruction. The people that were, I mean, sorry, the people that were left were the people that were uh, given privilege to still stay alive. The ones that were taken into judgment, their lives were taken from them, who drowned. I mean, 120 years. You realize this? 120 years. And not one person outside of the extended family came to Noah and said, I want to be on the boat, man, because I believe in God. No. All those who didn't come to the boat, they were taken. All right? The ones that were left behind were the ones that were righteous and godly and God was going to multiply again on the earth. So here's a question. The interpretation of this, which has normally been concerning the rapture that we're going to look at about in a second. Two men will be left in a field. One will be taken and the other left. Two men will be grind, women will be grinding a hand mill and one will be taken and the other left. The people that are left behind are the Christians. The people that are left behind are the ones that get to populate the new heaven and the new earth and the kingdom of God, his millennial reign, however we describe it. But a lot of times we interpret this the other way. What do I believe? I don't know. I can see it going either way. I can see Jesus looking over the mountain peak into something else and going, well, in that moment in time, one's going to be taken with me and the other's going to be left behind to tribulation and destruction. 
Or he could be saying, instead of that scenario, I am going to uh, take the lives of those that aren't following me. And the ones that are left behind are going to be my leaders in the new day. All right? Just a good example of how do you interpret things? What do you historically come from? How is God viewing it? I don't know that we really know. But it's interesting because what's he saying here? What he's saying here is maybe not some timeline sequential thing. He's saying this. And an hour that you think not, when you're just going on your merry way, it's going to happen and someone that you're with is going to be separated from you. Is that someone you're with who is separated from you, someone who's going to be with God or cast aside from God eternally? That, friends, is a sobering moment. As in the days of Noah, so it shall be. So I want to introduce this concept, and I've waited for three weeks, called the rapture. The Left Behind movie is referencing the rapture. A quiet taking out of Christians from this earth, and those who are left behind have to deal with the violent, turbulent mess of what happens in our world. And so I've added this to the diagram. It's getting a little more complicated. I know some of you like the real simple diagram. You can stay there if you want. But I want to help place some things in view for you. The rapture idea is that there is a partial coming of Jesus before his full second coming. Okay? And the rapture idea really didn't come into prominence until 1830. A guy by the name of John Darby, uh, Plymouth Brethren, uh, initiative uh, back in their early days. He actually pulled it maybe from another lady, they say, who, who had a vision of what God was going to do at the last times. But as you study, where did this idea that there's sort of, and, and some people who don't believe in the rapture, they, they sort of, well, sufficiently, to some degree, truthfully go, really? Come on. There's going to be two second comings, double comings. Where's that at in Scripture for the second coming? Well, I don't know. A lot of very brilliant Bible scholars adhere to the rapture. I personally adhere to the rapture. I've had to resort through that the last three weeks. Why do I believe what I believe? Because it was spoon-fed to me or not. But here's the fanciful thing going on that we shouldn't be taken back by that God couldn't do. People are trying to take Scripture and understand how can all this come aligned and all be true, though it's not clearly laid out. Jesus says this in John 14. He said, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I come to prepare a place for you. Go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So, in Matthew, one of the big discourses is the Olivet Discourse, the Matthew 24 and 25, before Jesus starts to move towards the cross and uh, the resurrection. In John, you don't find this Olivet Discourse there, but you find him in beautiful words describing to his disciples what it will be like as it's moving that direction and the intimacy that it means for him. And they're all worried. Oh, no, you mean you're going to leave. Come on, don't do this to us. And he says, uh, let not your heart be troubled. 
believe in God, believe also in me. He says, listen, I'm going to go and I'm going to prepare a dwelling place for you. And then I'm going to do what? I'm coming again to receive you to myself. And then where are we going to go? Go find a new house in Temecula? No. We are going to be with the Lord. Because he wants us there with him. In fact, if you read his high priestly prayer just a couple chapters older, he begs the Father. He says, I want them to be with me where I am so they can behold my glory. He's like, I want to take you home, man. How many of you love to say, hey, you know, you become good friends with someone. Hey, come to our house, hang out, we'll watch the game, you know, we'll have a good time, get some food ordered in. Jesus, same way. He said, I want you to come to my house. I want you to be where I'm at because you can do all this glory. So it's just a simple, straightforward, intimate word with his disciples. I'm going to come again. I'm going to be preparing your place. I'm going to receive you to myself. So in those words of Jesus start to be some, come some of the insinuations of a rapture true, uh, understanding. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse thir- beginning with verse 13, though, is the prominent passage that begins to articulate this concept of a partial coming of Jesus to receive his own before his full second coming in glory that nobody's, you know, anticipating. It says this in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about who... Uh, those who fall asleep, sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him, according to the Lord's word. We tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now, this is what's going on in that church. They'd had some teaching that Paul, God had used Paul to speak prophetically into their life about what the end times were going to be. Word started to circulate. Jesus was coming again. Maranatha, Maranatha. But then they started to go, wait a second. We have some people we care for that, and, and they've died. And what's going to happen to them? Are they going to miss out on this, this coming of the Lord and those kinds of things? And Paul just says, chill, 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 chill. Here. Let me explain this to you. Let me explain this to you. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. It's the Lord himself who comes down. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive and are left will be caught up with them. This imagery that, that uh, Paul is using is where the concept of a rapture comes from if you take the image that's represented here in a literal manner. Okay? There is... The coming of Jesus. There is the raising of the dead who are in Christ. That means followers of him. Those who have gone to sleep. That's a way of referring they've gone to sleep. They're not exterminated, right? And then there's this reunion. So you have the return, you have a resurrection, and you have a reunion that's happened. And you meet up together in the clouds 
and to be with the Lord forever. And that's why on the diagram, the arrow is a hook because it's this concept that Jesus comes down. He meets those who are raised from the dead. He comes to receive those who are still alive walking on earth. And then they are taken back up. And many believe that's when the marriage supper of the Lamb is recorded in Revelation occurs. And so there's a big party of all who are followers of him. Then there's a great tribulation period that's established as a seven-year term, believed by most people from the interpretation particular of Daniel, and it's 70 weeks it's recorded in Daniel. And then Jesus comes riding on a white horse. And those of you who work in children's ministry, you do a really good job over there. Because I asked my daughter, 10-year-old, last night, I said, she says, how's your speech coming? <clears throat> I said, well, it's a message, Grace, and thank you for asking, but I'm, I'm, I'm trusting it comes out okay. I said, I'm talking on Jesus coming again. Did you know that Jesus is coming again? You know what she said? She says, yeah, on a white horse. And that's what Revelation refers to in the second coming. But he comes on a white horse with those who are followers of him. He has this entourage, this escort, if you will. And so it's believed that there is a taking of the believers unto Jesus. That whole caught up, will be caught up, that's where the term rapture comes from. It's a Latin word called raptura. They'll be caught up, they'll be snatched, they'll be taken out. And one of the strongest reasons that people believe in a rapture is because they don't believe, according to Scripture, I can't go there right now, that God is going to have His followers go through such terrible time of wrath and destruction on this earth. And so He removes them. Now what's happened with those of us who believe in the rapture, that particular principle has moved us a lot of times to inactivity. Like, oh, we're going to be snatched down here. All hell is going to burn up earth. So why does it matter that I take care of anything, including the earth or the animal kingdom? Why does it really matter that uh, I, uh, I need to be about uh, I, I just have a good time? I don't have to go through that. No, that's not what should be the motivating factor of a rapture? The rapture is the concept that God dearly loves you and I as a believer and just as surely as you want your children to go through a fiery furnace, he removes. I also believe that it's part of the reason, we'll get into this maybe later in the coming week, that God has a plan for the Jewish people still and the rapture will wake up the Jewish people. But not everybody believes in the rapture. All I want to say is this, is that we don't know. But it's not outside of God's incredible vision and plan. So don't get locked into it. Don't get locked out of it. Let's go back to our Matthew passage. Then Matthew 24, two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Do you see how that can be played into the rapture? He takes and he leaves. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day the Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not Expect him. This whole thief in the night thing, it's not just here. Paul refers to it. Peter refers to it. Jesus refers to it in Revelation two different times. 
The concept of a thief is the unexpectancy in an hour you think not. Because if you would have known, you would have been there to safeguard your goods. I come as a thief in the night. Verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. Verse 48. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And then he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he is not aware of. And this is harsh, friends. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I didn't say that. Jesus did. Each of us in this room, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, have been given gifts and callings and passions and walked through experiences to use those as the servant of the master. And because the master's away, don't you and I dare be lulled to sleep thinking that he doesn't care what you're doing with your hours tomorrow. And I pray when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, I will be found as a faithful servant who's busy about the kingdom's work not running after frivolous things of this temporal world. I challenged this last week. I challenge us again. Therefore, be on alert. Don't be naive. Be bold in faith. Live without fear. And embrace Jesus alone. That's why I've given this challenge in these three weeks that your view of the end times will transform how you live in the present time. Your belief will either strengthen or dismiss the promise of hope, the purpose of mission, and the presence of Christ in your life. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And then Jesus said this. He says, you know the way where I'm going. (laughs) Thomas. Thomas is like, oh, this is just too much for me. Lord, we do not even know where you are going. How in the world do we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I didn't know you were using that verse this morning, huh?
one of the hard things speaking on the end times is to know that in a very room such as this, there may be those who do not know the way because you do not know the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. I want you to know that you can know Jesus. You can know Jesus by a simple turning of the disposition of your heart away from indifference to belief. Jesus wants you with him. He wants you to behold his glory. He wants you to be with him to establish his reign throughout the eons of time. He's got plans beyond dreams we could even try to try to even fathom. Will you be ready? Will you be left behind? Or will you be left behind no more? Because you will be with him. Growing up, there was a song written by Larry Norman. Come out of Chuck Smith, Calvary Chapel. A simple little diddly, I guess I found out this week, he wrote in one night because Chuck asked him to come up with something for the next night's Bible study or something. Some of you may recall the song. Life was filled with guns and war. And everyone got trampled on the floor. I wish we'd all been ready. Children died, the days grew cold. A piece of bread would buy a bag of gold. I wish we'd all been ready. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come and you've been left behind. Man and wife asleep in bed. She hears a noise and turns her head. He's gone. I wish we'd all been ready. Two men walking up a hill. One disappears and one's left standing still. I wish we'd all been ready. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come and you've been left behind. That song used to scare literally the hell out of me. It's not my desire to scare the literal hell out of you here this morning. But I do want to point you to Jesus. And maybe the best way I can close before I give an invitation for those of you who do not know, if you know the one who is the way and the truth and the life, is a poem that goes like this. It is not for a sign that we are watching for wonders above or below. The pouring of vials of judgment the sounding of trumpets of woe. It is not for a day we are looking, not even a time yet to be when the earth shall be filled with his glory as the waters cover the sea. Not for these, though we know that they are coming, for they are but adjuncts of him before whom all glory is clouded, before whom all splendor grows dim. We wait for the Lord, our beloved, our comforter, master, and friend. The substance of all that we hope for, beginning of faith and its end. We watch for our Savior and Bridegroom, who loved us and made us His own. For Him we are looking and waiting. For Jesus and Jesus alone. Will you pray with me? Jesus, I ask that in these moments, if there is anyone here who doubts if you were to return before the end of the day, that they would be with you, that they would cross that line of faith, 
If that is you, I just invite you to pray this simple prayer. Jesus invited them to come unto him, to believe in him as the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. No matter what other people may say or some of the spiritual sleepiness of our world today, not everybody goes to be with Jesus. Only those who want to be with Jesus. What kind of destiny would that be if you were forced to be in his presence for the rest of your life? Just simply pray these thoughts. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would forgive me of my sins. That you would come into my life in this moment. I want to be a follower of you. I believe that you are God came in the flesh. The Son of God who is coming again. That you have plans for my life, not only in this life, but in the life to come. And I want to live my life for you. So I repent. I turn from my indifference, my callousness, my carelessness, my cavalier spirit, and I turn towards you. And I will follow you the rest of my days as you enable. Thank you, Jesus, for bringing to me salvation through the simple yet very serious act of belief in you. Amen. I want to encourage you, if you prayed that prayer, I'd like to encourage you. On the back of your seat backs is a connection card that we all fill out every week. Take that card, fill it out. Mark, you're committing your life to Christ. Wanting to have a relationship with Him. I'd be glad to follow you up in this week to come. For the rest of you, your connection cards you've filled out, as well as the Lord's tithes and offerings, we're going to receive those as the worship team leads us in this closing song.